Wellness Force Radio. Feelings are essential, but they can't dictate our actions. We literally infect each other with our emotions. We came here for a special purpose. Let the purpose unveil itself. Knowing without doing is the same thing as not knowing. They're not just trackers. I'm going to wear this and it's going to help me do the right thing. Wellness Force Radio, episode 129 with best-selling author Gretchen Rubin. With a lot of the tendencies, just understanding how your behavior fits into a predictable pattern is often freeing for people because they're like, oh, I didn't understand this is what I was doing. And a lot of people, I think, have this experience with the four tendencies where it's like, now I understand why I succeeded sometimes and not other times. I understand the pattern of my life much better. This can really illuminate some hidden aspects of our nature. So the tendency isn't meant to tell you what to do. It's supposed to explain why you are doing it or aren't doing it. Because I think there's many things that everybody would benefit from. And what's puzzling to me is, given the fact that you acknowledge that something would make you happier, why don't you do it? Or you know that something would make somebody else happier. Why aren't they listening to you? What's up, my friend? It's your host, Josh Trent. And welcome back to another episode for your weekly access to global experts in all things wellness as we discover the physical and emotional intelligence we need to live life well. On this episode, we have our return guest, Gretchen Rubin, back on the podcast to talk about her brand new book launching today, The Four Tendencies, the indispensable personality profiles that reveal how to make your life better and other people's lives better too, which that's why we're here on Wellness Force Radio anyways, right? This physical and emotional intelligence, learning about how our brain works, why we do what we do. Well, in this episode, we went into depth on obligers, questioners, rebels, and upholders, those four tendencies that shape the way we interact with ourselves and with other people. Now, this framework, it's powerful. It allows us to make better decisions, meet deadlines, suffer less stress, and engage more effectively. 600,000 plus people have taken Gretchen's online quiz and managers, doctors, teachers, spouses, moms and dads, busy working professionals, fitness pros, they use this framework to help people make significant lasting change in their lives. This is based on 10 plus years of Gretchen's research and we're really gonna explore this aspect of our nature. How do we respond to expectations of others and from ourselves. Now, look, I'm raising my hand. I am an obliger with a capital O. That's why I'm here leading the Wellness Force community because when I'm of service to other people, that's when I personally avoid my darkness. Now, whether you're an obliger or not, explore what tendency you are in this conversation. Our personality types, yes, they can be deeply ingrained, but we know if we understand why we do something, well, then we're much more likely to change the outcome of our next behavior. In other words, if you've had trouble with your eating, If you've had trouble with your workouts, if you've had trouble with the inner narrative, you know, that band that plays the song you hate. Well, this episode is powerful for you. You're going to understand why it is you do what you do. What's your tendency and how does your tendency inflate or deflate the power of which you show up in the ways you eat, move, sleep and think, feel and act. Let's jump in for this second round interview with Gretchen Rubin. Oh, and don't forget to enter to win one of two free copies of Gretchen's book by just tapping your show artwork. Leave a review for the podcast. I'll send out a few books to our audience in the next two weeks. Just leave a review on your thoughts on the show, especially the impact from Gretchen. Let's step in. From the best-selling author of The Happiness Project and Better Than Before, Gretchen Rubin has come back to Wellness Force Radio to talk in depth with us about her new groundbreaking book, The Four Tendencies, The Indispensable Personality Profiles That Reveal How to Make Your Life Better and Other People's Lives Better Too. Gretchen, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back. Me too. You know, episode 51, we went deep into habit change last year. One of the most popular podcasts we've had. This episode is going live today, September 12th, the first day your book is live on Amazon and pretty much all places books are sold. I feel like this is our opportunity to take a swim with you into the pool of human nature. Excellent. You've been working on this book for quite some time. Did you write it, Gretchen, because people asked you to or as an upholder, did you write it because you just knew it had to be done? Well, I am an upholder, but no, it really did come because I introduced, as you mentioned, in my book, Better Than Before, which is about habit change, as I was thinking about habits and trying to understand patterns of how people could and couldn't effectively form habits, I stumbled on this personality framework, this difference, this way that people divide into four categories. And it was just one of 21 strategies of habit change that I talk about in Better Than Before. So it was an important strategy, but there were 21 strategies altogether. But once Better Than Before came out, 
I became deluged with people, parents, teachers, doctors, you know, HR people, bosses, team yeah. members, spouses, all these people asking, like they totally understood it, but they were asking me very nuanced questions about how you would apply it, or they were giving me these kind of mind-blowing examples of how they had used it in their own lives. And at first I thought, oh, I'll write a little pamphlet or like a little PDF that you download. But then I realized, no, it's actually, I had a lot to say yeah. to explain how the tendencies play out and some of the nuances that when you think about it for a while start to become more obvious. And especially this is the deepest dive I've ever done into the tendencies. I just mentioned to you before we recorded when I was coaching people heavily one-on-one, -on -one, this is what helped me so much connect, actually connect face-to-face -face with my words. And we're going to talk about the power of words today. Mm. This tendency quiz, by the way, this morning I retook it. I'm still an obliger. Okay. <laughs> so good. a year and a half well, later, I'm still an obliger. Well, and that this... is the biggest tendency. So that's good though, because it means you understand how a lot of people think. I believe so. And yeah. 800,000 people mm -hmm. plus have taken this quiz. Yes. I have to ask you about the data. Can you tell us why is the majority obligers? Can you share with us the splits? What this showed was that 41% of people were obligers, 24% of people were questioners, and then the smallest was rebels, that was 17%, and then only tiny bit bigger mm. was upholder at 19%. And this is what I had seen everywhere, Like because whenever I would speak about the four tendencies, I'd ask people to raise their hand. And this is what I would inevitably see in every group. Obliger was the biggest, then questioner. And then rebel was very small and upholder was only a little bit bigger. I spoke to some groups that had no rebels. Yeah. Interesting is that usually in a group, rebels sit right in the front or right in the back. That's the big pattern that I see, which is interesting. So this was very consistent with what I had seen in the world. And I think just going around the world, you're like rebels, you notice a rebel, but it doesn't seem like there's that many of them. And you feel like a lot of people are obligers. In fact, sometimes I think obligers think everybody is an obliger. Um, like some, somebody <laughs> I'm shaking said, my head. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody said to me, like, well, why is it that busy moms can't like us can't take time for ourselves? And I was like, well, I'm a busy mom, but I have no trouble taking time for myself. And the journalist said to me, neither do I. I said, well, you and I are both busy moms and neither of us have have trouble taking time for ourselves. So why are you asking as if that's true for everybody? And she said, well, I feel like everybody thinks it's true. Yeah. And I'm like. I think those are obligers and they feel like they feel like everybody feels the way they do, but not everybody does. It's it's like it's a specific tendency. It's a big tendency, but it's not everybody. It's interesting you brought up the mindset too, because sometimes as we're busy in our lives, it can seem like our way of thinking is the only way of thinking. You put your finger right on it. I think this is one of the big values of the tendency. It's certainly been the thing that's been helpful for me is that you just can't help but think that other people think the way you do or that they see the world the way you do. And what I realized is people have really different responses. And there's not that one person's right and one person's wrong, or you should be able to do this. It's just like people are different. And so you're at an advantage as an obliger. You kind of have a sense of what the way a lot of people think. Upholders are very small tendency. And so I think it was hard for me to understand. And I think maybe one of the reasons that I was able to identify the four tendencies was in so many ways, I felt like I didn't understand other people or I was puzzled by what they, like I wrote the happiness project and people kept saying to me, but how did you get yourself to do that stuff? And yeah. I said, well, I thought it would make me happier. So I did it. And they're like, but how did you get yourself to do it? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> as an upholder, that wasn't hard for me. But once I came up with the four tendencies, I'm like, oh, now I understand what these people are talking about. Something that's easy for me is not easy for them. They have to have their own way to do it, which is simple to do once you figure it out. But my way won't work for them. Oh, well, I'm a proud obliger at first. I'm not going to lie, Gretchen. I was kind of put off with my test. I was like, wait a minute. Uh, is this something I should feel shame about? And then I realized, yeah. no, this is so many people can relate to this because we might have an identity of our mind of who we think we're supposed to be. But if we take that deep breath and, and do this emotional inventory through the four tendencies, it's so freeing. My yeah. question for you is, when did you first actually know that you were truly an upholder? Well, it's interesting because... As I was doing the work for Better Than Before, I was starting to notice these patterns. And some instinct in me felt like they were somehow related, but I couldn't figure it out. So there's the story that I always tell the friend who said to me, I don't understand it. I know I would be happier if I exercised. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team. I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? To me, this like blew my mind. I'm like, 
this is really, really important. I know that I have to understand the reason for this. And then there were people that were complaining that New Year's resolutions were arbitrary. And I'm like, what's up with these people who are complaining about it being arbitrary? Or like the people who would say to me, I don't understand why you're writing a book about habit formation because like that's such a sort of horrible subject. Why would you want to spend all your time writing about something <laughs> so awful? And I'm like, I love habits. You know, yeah, me too. I could feel that they were important, but I couldn't identify how they came together. And then somehow I had this day where I was looking at my to-do list and somehow it hit me in a flash that what was the key thing was expectations, was the response to expectations. And the minute that you start thinking about expectations, you realize that there are outer expectations and inner expectations. You know, there's like the work deadline of the outer expectation. And then there's, you know, your own desire to get back into exercising. That's an inner expectation. Yeah. And so then I began thinking like, well, and then it logically follows that there are four because there's like inner, inner, outer, outer, inner, outer, and outer, inner. And that's what the four tendencies are. And then everything fit into it. I would think about examples, my own experience, everything. Uh, I tried to poke holes in it, but everything fit. And when I realized that I was an upholder and I realized what a small tendency it was, it was like everything in my life made more sense. And a lot of people, I think, have this experience with the four tendencies where it's like, now I understand why I complain about other people. Now I understand why someone's driving me crazy. Mm. Now I understand why I succeeded sometimes and not other times. I understand the pattern of my life much better. It's sort of like this can really illuminate some hidden aspects of our nature. Right. It's like someone's listening and they're saying, why do people exactly understand how I want them to understand? Well, it's because self-awareness is key. I mean, you talked about this in our last episode in 2016, the Temple of Apollo, right? There's a message yes. there and it's self-awareness. It's understanding who we are and what we do and why we do it. So these types, people are probably going, what are the four tendency types? Upholder, yes. love the quotes here. Discipline is my freedom. Questioner, I'll comply if you convince me why. Rebel, you can't make me and neither can I. I, and then obliger. You can count on me and I'm counting on you to count on me. Right. They intersect. There can be some different energies that flow between these four quadrants. Your mom is an obliger. Yes. Can you tell us about her tendency? How do you relate to her as an upholder? Well, it's interesting. My mother and my sister, who's the co-host of my podcast, Happy with Gretchen Rubin. So a lot of people kind of know her personality. You know, obligers are great family members. They're great people to have around. They're the rock of the world because they meet expectations. So I think for a child to have a parent who's an obliger is probably really great because they're really meeting those expectations. The thing that's interesting about my mother is that she's a great example of an obliger who's sort of intuitively figured out what she needs in order to meet her inner expectations because that's the crucial thing for obligers to understand. To meet an inner expectation, they have to have some form of outer accountability. So like my mother really values reading. Well, she's in a reading group where you really are expected to read the book. Or like when she exercised for years, she would meet a friend and they would go for a walk in the park together. And so she had the accountability to the friend. And just about everything in her life that she wants to do, there's some sort of accountability system that's been baked into it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes obligers don't feel any kind of conflict or any kind of frustration because they have the outer accountability that they need to meet an inner expectation. But sometimes obligers don't understand that that's what they need, and then they get really frustrated because they're like, well, why can't I exercise? Or I really want to work on that novel in my free time, so why can't I? Or I keep telling myself I'm going to start cooking more and not buying prepared food as much. But I never, I can't follow through for myself what's going on. And then when they understand what they need is that outer accountability, then that makes it much easier for them to follow through for themselves. I think in my own life too, I felt this phrase, discipline is freedom. And I know on a logical level, Gretchen, that's true. However, this meeting outer expectations, but resisting inner expectations, myself as an obliger, it's understanding that that's who I am. And then I set up the external framework so I can get there. So when we look at this rebellion piece, I mean, overwhelm is something that I think a lot of obligers deal with. Yes. We have so many moms, so many coaches, so many people that interact with, you know, one on one with others. Can you tell us what is this obliger rebellion? So obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And how this can show up is in the form of obliger rebellion, which is when an obliger will meet, 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 meet an expectation. And then suddenly that obliger snaps and is like, okay, this I will not do. And sometimes it's small and kind of silly and funny. And sometimes it's huge and destructive. Like it, you can quit a job or blow yeah. up a long-term relationship. Now, what it took me a while to understand is that obliger rebellion is really a pattern that is meant to be helpful. The purpose of it is as a safety valve. It's an escape hatch 
for an obliger because when obligers feel too much pressure from outer expectations, when they feel exploited, when they feel taken advantage of, when they feel that expectations are unrealistic or too high or aren't fair, like how come I'm the one who's always picking up the extra shifts? Why am I the one who's always expected to go on to that travel, that unpleasant travel that mm-hmm. nobody else in my team is picking up? So, and the thing about obligers that all the tendency should acknowledge is that obligers feel like they're taken advantage of and they are. They are taken advantage of. Upholders, questioners, and rebels, when they have something, a favor to ask, or they want somebody to like pick up a task, they will go to an obliger because an obliger is the one who's most likely to do it. So this is a real thing that obligers feel. It must be said that to the other tendencies, to upholders, questioners, and rebels, a lot of times the pattern of obliger rebellion seems like they don't understand the reasons for it because obligers typically won't say something like, They won't push back. They won't say it's not fair. They won't say you're asking too much or they won't say like, please, you know, I don't want you to send me work emails over the weekend or whatever it is. They kind of put up with it and will meet expectations until they have this explosive obliger rebellion. And so to an upholder, question or rebel, they're like, well, if you didn't want to do it, why did you say you would do it? Or like, why are you throwing this huge fit? Why can't we just have a quiet conversation about it? Or like, I don't understand like why you're so mad. You've never objected before. Mm. To them, it's kind of coming out of nowhere. So if you are an obliger or you're around an obliger, which you definitely are because there's so many obligers, we all have many obligers in our lives, you want to be very aware of when resentment or burnout or like exploitation is taking place. So for instance, let's say you're in a workplace and you're the boss. You would want to say say to yourself, okay, I need to make sure that work is equitably distributed. I don't want everybody taking advantage of one person who's just saying yes, or I'm going to look and see who's taking the extra shifts, who's picking up the unpleasant travel. Or I might say to somebody, hey, I've seen that you haven't taken a vacation in a year. I want, by the end of the week, I want you to come back to me and tell me what your vacation plan is because I don't want you to burn out. Mm. I need you to take the rest that you need. And so I'm going to give you accountability for taking that time. Because if you get to that point of deep burnout and, and resentment, that's when obliger rebellion can happen. And that's where it can get very, very disruptive. Many times when obligers talk about obliger rebellion, it is this feeling of being out of control. They will often describe it as acting out of character, like, I never act that way, I don't know what happened, or it's like explosive, it's like a volcano erupting, a balloon bursting, the lid being blown off of a pot. It's not a controlled, you know, like, let's have a quiet conversation about how to make things better, it's explosive. And so... It can be destructive. And for that reason, you really want to recognize when you're edging towards obliger rebellion and use strategies to avoid it. Or if you're around an obliger, you want to be very aware that this is something that can happen and you want to take steps to offset it. What I'm hearing from you is that the avoidance of the obliger rebellion might not work. It's meeting it head on and just being honest, like, hey, I believe that I'm approaching this obliger rebellion. Uh, When we look at perfectionism, which is one of these things that I believe all the tendencies deal with, but I'm curious what you feel in working with so many people over so many years, which tendency do you believe struggles the most when we look at being perfect, someone always trying to be perfect? So this is very interesting. I'm so glad you raised this because one of the things that's really important to understand about the four tendencies is that it only relates to how you respond to expectations. So we could have 50 obligers lined up right next to you. And depending on how ambitious they were, how considerate of other people they were, how neurotic they were, how extroverted they were, how analytical they were, how curious they were, all these things, they would look completely different from each other, except in how they respond to expectations. In that way, they would be exactly alike. So the tendency only explains one, it's a very significant thing, but it's just one thing about you. So perfectionism really isn't about standards. Perfectionism is about anxiety. It's about feeling anxious about standards. So like I'm an upholder and you might think that upholders would struggle with perfectionism, but I don't really struggle with perfectionism. But my sister, Elizabeth, who is an obliger, but who's a much more anxious person than I am, for her, it's a much bigger deal. So I think this is an example. Perfectionism is something where the anxiety that you feel about meeting a standard can come into play into your tendency, just the way everything in your personality kind of interacts in you, in kind of the alchemy that's you, but it's not necessarily related to your tendency. It's related to a different part of your personality. Love that. I was talking with a friend actually yesterday, and she mentioned perfectionism is just fear wearing different clothes. Mm, Yeah. 
Yeah. And I thought that was so powerful because maybe it isn't just one specific tendency type. Maybe it's more around the things that happen to us when we're kids or, you know, the brain is formed and then we get through that. Do you believe that when we come out of the womb, those first seven years, science shows us that they're the most pivotal in how we form adult relationships and how we interact with other people. Do you believe that these four tendencies are formed in years one through seven? I think it's before that. I think they're hardwired. I think they're genetically determined. So I think you're day one, what you're going to be. Okay. So now, you pop I, out into the world as a questioner or an obliger, huh? Now, I, I do think with time and experience, you learn how to manage your tendency better. And so it can look a different way. Mm. And certainly given your upbringing and your culture, it might affect how your tendency is expressed. So for instance, yeah. if you're a questioner in North Korea, you're probably going to learn to shut that down. And if you're a questioner in Silicon Valley, you might really like bring that to the fore because you might be very rewarded for that. So it's not that like it's not affected by what happens to you, but I think these go so deep. They're so instinctual. I think it's just there. And you know, anybody who's had kids, you think like they're the way they are. There's very little, you know, you can really screw them up, but but beyond that, they kind of they're like they're they're pretty fully formed on their own. And one thing that's interesting is hearing from people who knew their tendency from a very very young age, especially yeah. rebels, will tell me like that it's like their earliest memory is, you know, sitting in the middle of their bedroom as like a three or four year old and re and having like their mom say, put on your socks and realizing she can't make me put on my socks. <laughs> Nobody right. can make me. And like having this big epiphany that they remember, you know, as adults, it's interesting. So if you're as fascinated, deeply fascinated as I am already with what Gretchen is talking about, we are going to give away two free copies of her book today. So make sure you head to wellnessforce.com forward slash 129. And I'll pick two winners on the Facebook page in just a couple weeks. Gretchen, when we look at law of attraction, this is something that means something different to every human. Does this law actually apply to you in your work? Did you even consider the law of attraction and how you describe it in your own life, in your context, and how you wrote the book? No. Simple answer. And then in the power of language, a lot of people speak in, you know, esoteric verbiage, maybe spiritual. Some people call it spiritual babble. Do you believe what turns you off from the law of attraction is the way that people speak about it? I think what turns me off is the idea that it's a law. I'm, I'm like, it's a law according to whom? I mean, whose law? Is is there God and it's God's law? Is it the physical universe's law? Like, is it true in the sense that gravity is true? Is it, you know, it's like, I don't understand what it's connected to. Yeah. It's kind of like feng shui. I mean, feng shui is like, there's a whole belief system behind feng shui. So I'm like, do you believe in feng shui or not? I mean, I don't understand what it's related to. Yeah. And I think that's unique to every human. So for you, it just doesn't apply to your work. But when we look at the questioner, and by the way, we're focused so much on obligers and questioners, because let's be real, I think that's who's probably listening today, mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> especially based on your data. What's most fascinating to me about these questioners is they only know that why they do something, then the path becomes clear. Yeah. Once they have enough evidence that they've gathered, I've coached a ton of questioners. And mm. even when I'm mindful of my language, I've experienced from time to time, they become exhausted from always kind of digging to find the truth. And many of them get, you know, paralysis by analysis that sets in regardless of healthy external frameworks. So for the coaches that are listening, Gretchen, trainers, therapists, people that make that living working one-on-one -on -one with others, can you share a few ways that they can powerfully communicate with these questioners, especially the questioners that are really strong questioners? That is such an important question. So absolutely. So what you want to do is you want to give a questioner like ample justification, the data they need, the research they need. Um, also, questioners tend to love to customize. So you might say to them, like, this is like the general framework that I use. Let's think through how we can do it so that it's just right for you. Or why don't you start this and then you tweak it as you go to suit yourself more. I suggest doing it in the morning, maybe doing something in the afternoon will work better for you. They like this yeah. idea of self-experiment and customization. If you are getting to a questioner where you feel like they are just kind of spinning out of control and that maybe they are stalling or unconsciously stalling by saying, well, maybe this isn't the best route and haven't we haven't considered this and maybe we should do it this way. You want to always remind them of this value of efficiency and to say, you know, at a certain point, it's not efficient to keep searching for more information. At a certain point, any decision is better than no decision. You know, you're going to do better exercising, doing something than doing nothing. And right now you're doing nothing. So it's more efficient to get you started. You want to be very clear about your own credentials and your authority in making certain kinds of recommendations. I've seen this work over and over. Research shows because that's the kind of thing that they're going to find persuasive. 
Now, I will say this. So in Better Than Before, one of my favorite strategies to study was the strategy of loophole spotting. And this is when we let ourselves off the hook from following a good habit because we've come up with a loophole. Like, oh, with a boss like mine who pushes me so hard, I can't possibly exercise or I can't go running. It's raining or, you know, or I can't keep my my healthy habits because I'm I'm on vacation or whatever it is. Yeah. So this is a particular problem for questioners because they're really good at finding justification. So if they want a justification for like why they shouldn't have to exercise today, they will be able to generate those, you know, better than anybody because that's just the way their minds work. So you want to make them very aware of the fact that this is not make good sense that they are not justified in letting themselves off the hook. And that a lot of the thing about the tendencies, because you were talking about self-knowledge, that with a lot of the tendencies, just seeing the patterns, just understanding how your behavior fits into a predictable pattern is often freeing for people because they're like, oh, I didn't understand this is what I was doing. I I thought that I was really doing all this very conscientious research about what's the best form of exercise. I didn't understand that actually I've been doing this for three months And in all that time, I haven't exercised one time and I'm basically just refreshing my usual bookmarks and I'm not learning anything new, but I'm just sort of pretending that I can't make a decision yet because there's always more information that I could have. Yep. That's analysis paralysis. Sometimes we just can't have perfect information. And as I talked about in the beginning of the show, sometimes these four tendencies, they can bleed into one another. Mm -hmm. Both your husband and your literary agent are questioners. You talk about in the book, exploiting our tendency to our highest benefit. Mm -hmm. So what's the best for us as a questioner? How do we celebrate this aspect of being a questioner within ourselves? Well, being a questioner is it's so valuable. You know, and as you say, like some of the most important people in my life are questioners. Because they and they're good for everyone because they're the ones that keep everybody from wasting their time. They're the ones that are like, why are we doing it this way? Why are we doing this at all? This doesn't make any sense. Like somebody's asking us to do something that we don't have to do. And I have to say in my own life, you know, because as an upholder, my instinct is to say yes when people ask me to do something. Sometimes I do things that I really don't need to do or that are a waste of my time and energy. And I've learned to say to my husband or to my agent, is this something that I should do? Do I need to do this? Because if they say yes, then I know that it's justified. And if they're like, no, why would you do that? I'm like, oh, that's right. They help me remember. I don't have to say yes to everything. Like, especially in organizations, you want somebody who's like, well, why are we doing this? And by the way, this comes up a lot with children. So you have a questioner child who's like, well, why should I? Why should I learn about ancient Mesopotamia? Why should I memorize the multiplication tables? Why should I learn how to write cursive? And you should give that child a legitimate answer. It's not enough to say all fourth graders do this or because I say so or because you're going to get a bad grade if you don't do it because they just won't because they're like, this is dumb. Why should I do it? Give them a real answer. And here's the thing. If you don't have a good answer for why children should learn cursive, then why are they learning cursive? You know, this is something... this helps yeah. this helps everyone to stay focused on why are we asking ourselves to do these things because it's very easy to just and this is what questioners say you get a bunch of questioners together i guarantee you the first thing that they'll start saying is why are people such lemmings <laughs> why do people do all this dumb stuff they don't have to do like i don't understand it and they don't see, you know, why do they just do blindly what others ask of them? They're very puzzled by it. This power of language comes up so much in the Wellness Force community on Facebook. And just in my life, Gretchen, I really pride myself on being articulate, on saying what I feel and delivering it to somebody so they can actually feel what I'm saying. And for a lot of these tendency types, the most powerful thing is language, how we speak to them, the words we choose to either motivate or inspire them. When we look at the questioner and then the obliger, what are the best types of language we can use to motivate and inspire them. Well, you're 100% correct. And this is the thing about the tendencies. It's not like you have to create like giant systems in place. A lot of times it's simple messaging. It's just using certain words or phrases or explaining certain things. So if you were going to talk to a questioner, you would always want to embed in an expectation why you would do this. You should run two miles a day. Why two miles? Why should I run? Why, why would I listen to you? You want to say something like research really shows that when people run at least two miles a day, blah, 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 blah. And then the, the question is probably going to say, what if instead of running, I decided to cycle 10 miles a day? And you're like, 
that could work too. Let's think yeah. about that. Let's customize it for you. For the obliger, it's like one of the things that can work for some obligers is thinking about the future self. I know you don't feel like getting up and exercising today, but like by the end of the day, when you've had more focus, you've had a better mood, when your blood sugar is down, when you're going to sleep more soundly, you're going to be so glad that your self right now went for that run, your future self is going to thank you. Or you might have a different kind of accountability. You need to be healthy for your family. Like if you are sluggish or you have bad, you know, or you get diabetes or whatever, that's not going to be good for them. You have a duty to your family. Or you could say, I'm going to be a role model for other people. I'm going to show people what it looks like. I'm going to keep a commitment to myself and I'm going to model good behavior. Mm. Um, or I'm going to join a running group or I'm going to have an accountability group. There's a million things that you could do. But if you're dealing with a questioner, you want to hit certain, you know, you want to push certain buttons. And if you're dealing with an obliger, you want to hit other buttons. And it could just be as simple as like a couple things that you say in conversation that could have dramatically different results. I think my favorite upholder in the entire world is Yoda because he mentioned there is no try. You only do or do not. And I find that when people say this, I'll try, maybe I should, I kind of might, oh, I'll think about running in the morning. Isn't that really just disempowering language, no matter what tendency type you are? Yeah, it is. I mean, and I think that that's when you really want to drill down and be like, I don't want to hear what you should do. Yeah. I want to hear what you want to do and what you're going to do. And this is a thing to use on yourself. Whenever anybody says to you, you should be able to, you should prick up your ears and push back yeah. because that's often an indication that somebody's going to give you advice that works for their tendency, but not for your tendency. So as an upholder, I might say to you, you should be able to make a commitment and stick to it if it's something that's important to you. doesn't matter if you should be able to. Or I, as I might say to a questioner child, you should be able to follow my instructions without, you know, without raising your hand 10 times. Or I might say to a rebel, you should be able to follow doctor's orders. Yeah. Or I should say to an obliger, you know, you should be able to make time for yourself. It's like, who cares what you should be able to do? It doesn't matter what you should be able to do. There's only like what works for you. This is such gold, Gretchen. I love so much that you brought that up because the word should. I mean, yeah. why do you think there's memes out there where there's the should on you monster? Oh, I'm shoulding all over myself, right? So, yeah, 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 exactly. This is so powerful. Yeah. And I think and you mentioned earlier about how sometimes people feel bad about their tendency. And this is something that is really, it makes me feel sad. There's like no other word for it. It makes me feel sad when people like wish that they didn't have their tendency because I'm like, all of these tendencies have strengths and weaknesses. All of yeah. these tendencies include people who are big successes and also big losers. Just deal with whatever you have. It doesn't, there's solutions for everything yeah. that's getting in your way. And it's so much more constructive to just think like, well, given what works for me, how do I set things up so I get where I'm trying to go rather than saying, I wish I were different or like, I wish that something else worked for me. I'm like, it doesn't, who cares? Mm. They can all get there. They just have to get there in their own way. Yeah, it's working with what we have from a core awareness level. I love this. And you mentioned strength, weakness. What's one of your weaknesses? Doing things too automatically. You know, like, oh, somebody says to me, I have to do it. And I do it without thinking, do I really want to do it? Do I really have to do it? Hmm. Or another thing is judgment. A lot of times upholders are very judgmental because things that they can do pretty easily, they see other people struggle. And they're like, I don't understand that. Like, I have a lot more empathy for other people now that I understand that don't, they don't see the world the way I do. And one thing I didn't properly appreciate is how cold upholders can seem to other people. Because it's like, well, you know, I know you've got your report that's due tomorrow and you want me to proofread it, but my report's due tomorrow too. And I, so I need to work on my report so I can't help you. Hmm. So other people might be like, that's cold. But to an upholder, it's like, well, I got to do my thing. Like I, I got to work on my thing. I don't have time to help you. Yeah. Um, now an upholder would say your lack of planning is not my emergency. That's a very upholder thing to say. Um, <laughs> but the reality is, is that that can be cold, you know, or like, yeah. Oh yeah, I know we have company staying at our house this weekend. But, you know, I'm training and so I need to go for my 10 mile run. So I'm just not going to be there for brunch. And other people might be like, we've got guests. You can't go for a 10 mile run. And then they're like, mm, well, yeah, I can because I'm, you know, I got to I got to do what I got to do. I was talking with a friend about empathy. You brought up empathy. And for people that feel more than others, we know this. They're empaths. Being a person who's an empath. Page 103 in your book, which I love, you mentioned that obliger is the rock of the world. And I felt like that sometimes in my life, at work, at home, and in life. Not only is this a biggest group, but they're the ones whom people count on most. Yes. What role do you feel this empathy plays into the tendency type of obliger? In other words, do you believe that some people are literally born 
more empathetic as an empath than others. Yeah, but again, I don't think that's tied to tendency. I think that's just like another aspect of your personality. And I think some obligers think that that's tied together. They think I can't make time for myself if somebody else has needs because I always put other people in front of myself or, you know, I'm always thinking about other people instead of taking care of myself. Yeah. In my observation, that's an overlay that doesn't belong there. That's not what's really going on. It's really about accountability. There are obligers who don't really care about other people. And they're like, I'm going to do something um, if I'm going to get caught and get in trouble if I don't. Like, yeah. you don't, it's not necessarily tied to being an obliger that you care a lot about other people or putting their needs first. And this can get into trouble with obligers by mischaracterizing what's going on. They sometimes don't understand how to fix it. So if what you say, if what you're narrative talking about language, you were talking about the importance of language, if the language that you're using to yourself is... I always put other people first, and therefore I can never have time for myself. If that's your explanation for what's going on, you might have this conclusion, which many obligers have told me they have a conclusion that they've acted on without success to great failure, is to think, if I would get rid of outer expectations, then I would naturally meet inner expectations. If I quit that demanding job, if I divorce that husband, if I retire early, Outer expectations will fall away, and then at last I will make time for myself. At last I will meet my inner expectations. And over and over, obligers say, this does not happen. The mere disappearance of external expectations or the lightning of external expectations does not mean that inner expectations will be met. There must be outer accountability in order for inner expectations to be met. And so you don't want to turn, you know, turn your whole – like somebody was saying, like, I took early retirement. I actually sacrificed a lot of money. Because I had this fantasy that I would be able to do all this stuff for myself, and I've done none of it. Or somebody saying, I quit. You know, I had a friend where this happened. He quit a really good job because he wanted to start this side business on his own and did nothing for a year, even though he was incredibly productive in a, jo- in a work environment. Mm-hmm. And if I'd known then what I know now, I would have said, hey, man, you got to get a coach. You've got to get a client, even if it's somebody who you're, who's not actually paying you yet. It's just somebody who's waiting for your stuff. You need to, you know, think of your duty as a role model. You need to join an accountability group, whatever it takes to give yourself accountability because it's not enough to quit the job. It's almost like what I'm feeling. This is reverse engineering for the self-authenticity piece that a lot of people are searching for, you know, just really understanding who I am. We will link the test, by the way, the 800,000 people plus test in our show notes today. Let's talk about dating. I want to pivot with you, Gretchen. I'm a Taurus. I don't know if you do follow any horoscopes at all. As an upholder, I think you probably don't. Is that true? Good prediction. You're right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I do feel connected to that somewhat. I have not had great success with uh, previous female Leos. At times, I feel repulsed by the tendency type of rebelliousness of the rebel. So many conversations I've had have been just that conflict of how we interact with each other. Do you believe that when we look at these four blocks of tendencies, there are certain types of combinations of tendencies that will have more trouble in these intimate relationships than others? What are the pros and cons of dating within the four tendencies? Well, it's interesting that you say that you've had trouble with rebels because one of the most striking patterns, if you talk about how the, when the tendencies pair up, one of the most striking patterns is that when a rebel pairs up at work or in romance, it's almost always with an obliger. And to me, the fact that you aren't attracted to rebels is actually probably good for you because often an obliger who, who hooks up with a rebel, it's somebody who's really willing to what looks to me as an outsider and as an upholder, like really to bear a very big burden within that relationship. Hmm. So a rebel will say things like, I'm here to make sure that life is fun and that we don't take things too seriously. And the obliger pays the bills, takes out the trash, makes sure the dishwasher's loaded, goes to the grocery store, you know, makes sure that the trains run on time. And I'm like, well, is that a fair exchange? But if it works for you, it's great. You know, whatever it takes to make a relationship run. Yeah. But if you're not attracted to that, it might mean that you're an obliger who's pretty wary of disproportionate work, yep. which to me, again, coming as an upholder, I would think would be good. If you're an obliger who tips to upholder, that might be the case, that you're not attracted to that rebel side. Whereas many obligers are very attracted to the rebel side because they feel immense pressure from the from outer expectations. And the rebel is being like, 
no way we don't have to do what they say come with me yeah we're gonna ignore them they're so tempting these rebels yes these rebels are so tempting Gretchen like I feel you because it's almost like the spark of our attraction was because there was so much voltage disparity you know this person acts one way I act a completely different way yet it was kind of the glue that paradoxically held us together what do you think about that No, I think that's true because I think there's a deep affinity between obligers and rebels. I think obligers do feel a great attraction to that rebel energy and that rebel uh, willingness to ignore expectations. Rebels resist if you ask or tell them to do anything. And this can be a complicated tendency to deal with if you're not prepared for it or if you don't understand how it plays out. So for instance, a friend of mine who's married to a rebel has been married for a long time said, I finally realized that the less I ask for, the more I get. And I was like, yes, that is like the way to deal with a rebel. Don't (laughs) ask or tell them to do something and then they'll do it. They'll choose to do it out of love for you. Now see, as an upholder, I want you to do it because you should do it. I want you to do it because you're supposed to do it. I want you to do it because you said you would do it. I want you to do it because it's the rule. And I get very uncomfortable when I'm around rebels. Now I'm very close to a lot of rebels and I I work with some rebels and I've learned so much from rebels and how they see the world, but I don't think I could be married to a rebel because it would just be too unsettling for me as an upholder to see someone who just wants to be spontaneous, who doesn't care about a to-do list. I mean, literally my husband and I will wake up Saturday morning and we're like, what's going to happen this weekend? And we'll kind of go over it. And I find that very, very satisfying. He's a questioner though. So he still does the kind of check boxes with you. Well, yes, he's a questioner who tips to upholders. So he's got that strong upholder side. And for him, it makes sense because he's like, we want to get everything, fit everything in that we need to do. We want to do it in the most efficient way. So if I know that we have to go to a brunch in Midtown, you know, downtown on Sunday morning, well, if we want to stop by this one store to pick up this one, you know, I don't know, like mittens for our daughter. Oh, well, it's right near there. So let's plan on doing that because that makes the most sense. And, uh, And so for him, it's much more about like efficiency and how do we plan things so that we make time for everything that's important to us. Whereas for me, I just like to know what's going to happen when. And I like the feeling of like, I'm crossing this off my list. Like I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm getting a lot done. I'm meeting my expectations for myself. I just feel like the rebel is kryptonite. It's literally junk food and I just can't go there. So what I'm hearing from you is that these all can play together, but there maybe isn't one or two that stick out as being not a match, correct? Well, because part of it is that like, you know how we were talking about how there's all the different factors. And so it's just why people can fall in love and get along for the long term. It depends on so many factors. So if you had a rebel who's really, really considerate of other people and really and really values the identity of being a loving partner, that person is going to be one kind of rebel to be married to. But if you have a rebel who's not very considerate and who doesn't have a high value of being uh, like contributing a lot to a relationship, yeah. that person might be more difficult to be married to just because of the other aspects of their nature that are playing into their tendency. There are certain combinations that are easier than other. I I think that, as I said, rebels often team up with obligers. That's a very, very striking, prevalent pattern. I think the hardest one generally is upholder rebel because they are opposites. They see the world in such different ways. They're very kind of extreme personality types. I have heard of people who are successfully married um, who are upholder rebel, but it does seem to be one that's rare. And then also it's like, I've heard like a lot of times, you know, maybe they uh, they live in different cities or, you know, they have things where they're not making so many demands on each other. Well, the interesting part about this whole thing is that there maybe isn't some blanket answer we can give. I mean, this is a flexible framework. These four pillars, these four quadrants, these four tendencies are just a way for people to operate in their life from a better place of self-awareness. So do not forget to head over to the show notes page, wellnessforce.com forward slash 129. Get one of these copies of Gretchen's books. Gretchen, this is the last part of the show. It's seven deep dive questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Fire away. As an upholder, what makes you laugh the most? I mean, what cracks you up? The thing that I love the most is the show The Office, the American version of The Office. I love that show. It makes me laugh every single time. What do you love most about it? Uh, the pranks, Jim and Dwight's pranks. I love the pranks. They're very, they're very funny. They're very ingenious. Yes, it's a great show. When you travel as much as you do, what have you been your go-to nutrients, your snacks, your foods that you bring with you or even plan ahead for mm. when you eat when you're out on the road? 
I'm a really, really strict low carb person. So I really, really eat very, very low carb. So I have to plan for snacks because it's now actually I was at an airport that had like a low carb section of snacks, which was amazing that usually I don't see that. So I always travel with bags of almonds and also Nick sticks, which are these kind of like, you know, if it's because it's hard as a low carb person to have packaged food. Yeah. And so Nick sticks are like beef sticks and they're really filling and they taste good. So that's what I take when mm. I travel. You were inspired by Gary Tobbs uh, quite a I bit was. in our last episode. How many grams of carbs are you kind of shoot for each day? Well, I eat as little as possible. So I probably, I mean, I eat a lot of nuts. That's probably my biggest source of carbs. Okay. I probably eat fewer than 20 grams of carbs a day or maybe 30. We had a lot of questions around abstaining and moderating last year. Mm, Once someone's yeah. done this inner work to identify if they truly are an abstainer or a moderator, do you believe it's possible for them to shift from one of those areas? I don't know why they would try. No, probably not. People of any tendency type feel overwhelmed at times. Is there a common thread that connects to them in transcending this? For me, it's a breath. I think we all can relate to just taking a deep breath when we feel overwhelmed and stressed. Um, but do you believe that there is a safeguard for overwhelm that applies to all tendencies? But see, it's interesting because the question the tendencies is meant to answer is, why aren't you taking that breath? You say you want to take the breath, but you're not. So why is it that you're not? So the tendency isn't meant to tell you what to do. It's supposed to explain why you are doing it or aren't doing it. Because I think there's many things that everybody would benefit from. And what's puzzling to me is, given the fact that you acknowledge that something would make you happier, why don't you do it? Or you know that something would make somebody else happier. Why aren't they listening to you? So there's like a million things I would suggest. The tendencies is like, what do you do when you can't do it? When you can't meditate, you can't go to bed on time, you can't quit sugar, you can't turn off your device, you can't write a novel in your free time, you can't read in your free time, you can't stop playing Candy Crush. It's like, why can't you? <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's, not, it's not about the habit itself. It's about understanding why you're not able to meet an expectation for yourself. This is why I've loved having you on the show today. I have a couple more questions for you, but I just want to honor that answer. I mean, that is exactly why I do what I do. That's why we explore this physical and emotional intelligence here on the show. So such a great answer, Gretchen. When we, look at the, oh, <laughs> when we look at the connectivity in the world, we're more connected now than ever. It can connect us to love, happiness, and abundance. But there's also this duality that we feel with the news media and Facebook connecting us to both sadness and death and despair in the world. How do you personally set up healthy boundaries to stay conscious of what's happening in the world, but also not to have it impact you negatively? Well, one of the things I do is I tend to get my news from a newspaper. Like my husband and I get full sets of newspapers because he takes this to work and I read mine, a physical newspaper. And the advantage of this is, first of all, written news tends to be more analytical and uh, less emotional than like watching a video or cable news or, you know, listening. Um, words give you more of a distance and it tends to be a little bit time removed. And so there's often reflection. So you're not like getting overwhelmed like every 20 minutes as the situation's unfolding or as something's happening, you're getting kind of like, well, how did, you know, what happened? You know, a, a more complete version of it. And you come to the end of it because what happens with a lot of um, political news, political commentary, news of the world is that you can just hit refresh, 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 go to this mm. site, go to that site, go to politico.com, go to cnn.com, go to NYT, go to Washington Post. You know, you can just do that forever. You will never come to the end of it. And so it feels so overwhelming. One of the things somebody told me, and I really want to do this, and I just don't know how because I'm not good with my phone, is to turn off news notifications. I don't need to have a news alert every time something happens. Like, off, off, You, you still know. have the notifications coming up for you? You know what? It's weird because I didn't have them. And then like a month ago, they all of a sudden popped up. So clearly it was some update or something. So I just need to go. I need to spend like they don't really bother me. I don't have any noise or anything. So I just kind of flip through them. But I mean, yeah. you know, flip them away. But I'm a big fan of of using printed sources because it is more analytical and it is less emotional and it is limited. Now, of course, I see stuff on Twitter like everybody but I think that trying to have that be my main source of news has helped me. What is wellness to you now as a mom, an author, a speaker, somebody who I believe is a leader that just wakes people up to this awesome version of themselves? How do you personally define wellness? What does wellness mean to you? To have the energy and the freedom from pain to do anything that I want to do. 
Gretchen, thank you so much. Your work has impacted the way I think and feel and act in my life. And even on interviews, when I interview people like yourself, it's been so fun to connect with you again. I just really want to honor and acknowledge this ripple effect that you're creating in our wellness world. So thank you so much for what you do. Oh, thank you. I feel like we could talk all day. I love talking to you about this stuff. This is so fascinating to me. And by the way, as an obliger, I would be happy to help you with your notifications on your phone. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Probably my 12-year-old could do it if I'm going to get off the phone and go ask her to turn that off. I'll end the show with one of the most powerful quotes that I read in your book, but I want to give you a chance to talk about your podcast and really at your core and your heart, why you wrote this book and why it's coming out now. Yeah, so I have a podcast called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, where I, with my co-host, who's my sister, Elizabeth Kraft, um, who is an obliger, as we discussed, um, we talk about how to be happier, you know, concrete, manageable things that you can do as part of your ordinary day um, to be happier. And that's a weekly podcast, which you can get anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And I have a site, GretchenRubin.com, where I write about all my adventures and happiness and habits and the four tendencies. And there's tons of resources there for anybody who wants to learn more. And, you know, the four tendencies, I wrote the book, The Four Tendencies Now, because I just felt like there was such an overwhelming level of curiosity and engagement from people after I introduced the framework in my book, Better Than Before. It was just like people really wanted more. And I thought, I need to write this book and figure this out. I created this framework. I'm the world's own one and only authority on it. So I need I need to write the book on it. And and partly also to just figure it out for myself. The only way I can learn anything or think anything through is by writing about it. And so I was like, if I really want to understand this myself, I need to write a book about it. So that's the book that I decided to tackle. This is a big question that I did not ask you, but it just came to my consciousness. If someone's feeling resistance to knowing what tendency type they are, How do they push through that? How would they actually just relax into their curiosity and just discover which tendency type they are? That's interesting because a lot of times rebels are like, if somebody tries to get a rebel to take the quiz, they're like, you can't make me take that quiz. (laughs) Or questioners are like, what's the scientific validity of this quiz? And why would I waste my time taking some dumb quiz? These things are, you know, these things make no sense. You know, I think it's like one of these things where you can't force people. Um, You can't even force yourself. And just to think like, do you want to understand yourself better? Do you want to have a vocabulary that might illuminate hidden patterns? If there's ever anything about yourself that's frustrated you, this is one framework that you might find interesting that might give you information that would be useful to you. It's an experiment. You know, you have nothing to lose if you dismiss it. It's a very short quiz. And if you gain something, it could be really powerful. As we close out the episode with Gretchen, I want to read this quote from page 243. This is from Isaac Dennison, a letter from August 9th, 1923. Mm -hmm. He writes, just as coffee can grow under 7,000 feet and cedar over 7,000, I think that every human being requires a certain type of soil, temperature, and altitude, very narrowly defined for some, almost universal for others, in order to feel free and happy. That is to say, free to develop his nature to the utmost of which is capable. I believe that one can feel completely free in both a Trappist monastery or at the court in Berlin, but I think it would have to be an unusual and unusually gracious personality that would feel free in both places. Gretchen, thanks so much for your book and coming on the show. Thank you. It was so much fun to talk to you. Hey, my friend, thank you for hanging out and growing with me on today's show. Remember to hit subscribe, share this podcast with somebody you care about that you think gets to hear this message. Support the show by leaving a five-star review for the podcast right now, simply by tapping on your show artwork on your iPhone. Click that purple link that says review this podcast. It helps the show reach more conscious and smart people like you, and your voice will attract more world-class guests that want to come on the show. So let them hear your voice. For all the downloads, videos, links, and free resources mentioned on the episode, go to wellnessforce.com forward slash radio. And while you're at my house on the web, join us in the Wellness Force community newsletter on that page and I'll send you four free guides around staying healthy with your eating, moving, and sleeping while you travel. Join a group of people like you over at the Wellness Force community Facebook page. This is where we talk about the things that really matter. We share our wins, inspirations, struggles, and a lot more. So join us, tap on the show artwork on your phone and hit that purple link that says join the Facebook group and I will welcome you at the door. Okay, now you get to go out into your world and create impact for the people that you care about. So until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness.